From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. And we welcome you again to Open Line Thursday here on EWTN, the Global Catholic Radio Network. Jack Williams away today. I'm Tom Price. Glad to be joined by our Thursday host, Father Brian Mullady. How are you today, Father? Just peachy, thank you. And you've got uh, sunny skies in Portland, Oregon. That is we an amazing do. thing. Wow. And it's 50. Oh, wow. Holy uh. cannoli. That's right. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, hopefully it will be a very upbeat show to go with the uh, upbeat weather that you're having there in Portland. You got that right. Yeah, uh-huh. well, let's uh, let's get going on that. Here's our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us outside of North America, please dial the U.S. country code and then 205 271 2985. You can also text the letters EWTN to 55000. Wait for our response and then text us your first name and your brief question. Message and data rates may apply. And of course, you can always email us the address openline at EWTN.com. Openline at EWTN.com. Be sure you put either Thursday in the subject line or Father Brian in the subject line, something along those lines. Now today, Father, we're going to kick it off with uh, a discussion of the Wedding Feast of Cana. Yes, um, many of the Catholic authors have been writing about this right now uh, because, of course, it was the gospel for last Sunday's Mass, Uh Uh and it also is sort of the tail end of the celebration of the Epiphany because it's the first manifestation of our Lord. And of course, remember, the word epiphany means manifestation uh, as a a part of his public ministry. And of course, Mary's present, which is a significant feature. Her intercession is sought. And it's interesting that this takes place at, uh, first of all, to save a couple from ordinary embarrassment In other words, it isn't this extraordinary, magical sort of thing. And no one says much about it uh, in the sense that it's, it's, the steward's astounded, but he's about the only one that really knows about the miracle. So Christ says, of course, his hour hasn't come, but Mary encourages him. So charity and also his desire to show us what the purpose of our life is takes precedence. And the significance of having it at a wedding is central for Scripture. Because as you know, in the Old Testament, first of all, there are many places, Prophet Hosea comes to mind, the Prophet Isaiah comes to mind, where the prophets portray uh, God as a husband to Israel, who is an unfaithful wife normally. Uh-huh. But uh, Israel is invited to a spousal union with God. And through Israel, of course, the whole human race. And this will be completed 
in the Catholic Church, which is the new Israel, the successor, the fulfillment of Israel. So spousal love means that one totally and sincerely gives oneself completely to the love of another without fear of being exploited. That's true in a human marriage, but in this case it has to do with cosmic proportions because creation is invited to experience the goodness of God. In fact, it's a result of the goodness of God. And that final goodness is the number of the elect will be filled up at the end of time. And each of us then, as a member of the Catholic Church, is invited in our souls to a spousal union with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In fact, the whole mystical life and the whole examination of the mystical life is about how we allow this spousal love of our souls to take and have greater effect in both what we think about our lives, but also in the way in which we carry them out every day. So, um, I will espouse you to me in justice and righteousness, as said in the Old Testament, to uh, the people of Israel through the prophet Hosi. Remember, they're also said to have been lured into the desert, and God speaks tenderly to their heart. Uh-huh. Well, that's the Ten Commandments. That's the old law. Israel was lured into the desert to experience that. But in the New Testament, remember, the law is written primarily on our hearts, And it's primarily the Holy Spirit. That's why the New Testament justifies in itself. Whereas the old law is looks forward to this justification and explains what it is, but doesn't give the power to do it. In the wedding feast at Cana, then, we see in this very ordinary situation in which Christ uh, saves this couple from embarrassment, the rehearsal of this spousal union of love with God, Mary tells the um, servants, do whatever he tells you. Because in order for us to experience this depth, you could say, of love, we also have to obey God's law. And we also have to be obedient to the example and ministry of Christ. Christ did this as an example of ordinary charity with ordinary people. And the same thing is true of us. Oftentimes in religion, it's tempting to think that we're not doing anything important because our life is so ordinary. And yet, as you know, the little flowers doctrine is to do the ordinary with extraordinary love is what this is all about. So in the Wedding Feast of Canaan, we've seen all these spousal themes all drawn together at the beginning of Christ's public ministry, plus the blessing of the sacrament of marriage and its connection eventually to himself when he dies on the cross. And not only are we talking about human couples, which woefully today marriage is in such disarray, Mm -hmm. to try to reestablish them in their own spousal love characteristic of marriage, but also in our interior souls so that we can grow in this spousal love also. So do whatever he tells you. There you go. Father, thanks for unpacking this. Really appreciate that. It is Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. We do have a line open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 
288-3986. Interesting email that we received here, Father, from Dana. Dana says, which one takes precedence, the Bible or the traditions of men? For example, if the Bible gives different instructions for baptism than what has been practiced by tradition, which one should we follow? I have no idea what she means by different instruction yeah. and tradition. Yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, the, the language of baptism is in the Bible. Go therefore baptize all nations in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also, the ritual of baptism is demonstrated, for example, when uh, Philip is asked by the, Candace, the eunuch from the court of Candace to baptism by water. And the tradition which is spoken of in the Catholic Church are not the traditions of men. Um, let's say whether you um, have a font or have immersion, uh -huh. but they're the traditions of God, the fact that you have to use water also, and the fact that we baptize infants to save them from original sin. Now those are not just the traditions of men, those are the traditions which Christ has um, mandated for us and you remember there was a long discussion in the Council of Trent because the Protestants deny all tradition. Mm -hmm. They only affirm scripture yeah. as to which was more important, scripture or tradition. And they were not talking there about the traditions of men. In other words, only human law. Mm -hmm. But the traditions that come to us from divine law. And so they couldn't decide. And the Catholic option is at et, both and. Both are equally important because... Tradition is revelation spoken, and it obviously came first with the preaching of the apostles. Scripture is revelation written, which has a specially privileged place because of the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is contained in the scriptures. And both the writing and the speaking are absolutely essential for us to experience the fullness of our doctrine. Dana, thank you so much uh, for your question. If you would like to yes. send us an email uh, for a future show, here's the address, openline at EWTN.com. That's openline at EWTN.com. Again, in the subject line, put either a Thursday or you could put uh, Father Brian, Father Milady, something like that, uh, to make sure that we get the right, uh, right questions going to the right show. In a moment, we will get to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Milady, we're live on this Thursday afternoon here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. If you're not familiar with Church Pop, we certainly recommend it. Church Pop takes a fresh and fun look at the news shaping our world. Featuring engaging, inspiring, and informative Catholic social media content, it's a lot of fun. You can find Church Pop on Snapchat, on Instagram, and right there on the web by going to churchpop.com. By the way, you can now get Church Pop directly to your email inbox. Just visit EWTN.com and click on the word subscribe. 
All right, if you're ready now, let's go to the phones at 833-288-EWTN. We begin with uh, Rick in Bay City, Michigan. Hey there, Rick, what's on your mind today? Hello, I, I was wondering if Father uh, Milady saw in the uh, wedding feast at Cana sort of an allegory where um, uh, sort of at the end the scripture says that we've saved the best wine until last. And uh, the allegory consists in this is that the revelation of God to mankind was not um, uh, complete at the beginning, uh, but it was uh, it was saved until later time. Uh, the revelation of God through Jesus Christ, and that being the better wine that was saved until last. Uh, yeah, I think it certainly would uh, bear such an interpretation. Also, it does have Eucharistic overtones, too, mm, yeah. because, you know, the water becomes wine, basically. So from the poor things that we give, we receive the gift of himself through uh, what appears to be bread and wine to us. But, yeah, no, that's the, those allegories would be uh, very beautiful, and they certainly could be food for meditation, yes. Rick, thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian Mullady, 833-288-3986. Here's a question from Clifford. I am freshly Catholic, and my non-Catholic family is giving me some pushback regarding apostolic succession. How can I reply to their comments that, quote, the apostolic age is over? What do you think, Father? Well, the apostolic age is over only in the sense that the apostles are dead. Right, right. I mean, uh, it's the faith of the apostles, as is clear even in the book of Revelation. Remember, in the heavenly city, you have 12 courses of stone that underlies it. Mm. Uh, it's the faith of the apostles that we're trying to plumb when we define doctrine. All these councils and all this thousands and thousands of pages of verbiage and theological reflection <laughs> are merely trying to plumb what the apostles actually believed on Pentecost. And you can see this by the fact that uh, there's a pious tradition, and this isn't historically accurate, but it, it reflects this attitude that when the Holy Spirit came upon the apostles, each one stood up and pronounced one of the 12 articles of the Apostles' Creed. Because the Apostles' Creed, you know, uh, um, expresses the faith of the Apostles all throughout the centuries. So you may as well say, well, no one should think anymore about Christ then because Christ is gone. Well, Christ established a church so that we relate to him and we do that primarily through the faith of the Twelve Apostles. So just the fact that they happen to be dead doesn't mean their ideas are dead. Um, I'm also very interested today with this synodality business with the idea that people talk a lot about what's the traditional word, the census fidelium, uh -huh. the sense of the faithful mm -hmm. as being the source of our doctrine. Well, that's true, but people have to realize that the census fidelium is not limited to the people who are living now. The census fidelium are all the believing Christians for the last 2,000 years, beginning with the foundations of our church, who are the apostles. And Christ was very clear about that while he was on earth. Yeah. 
So you need to express to them that the apostolic age is only over in the sense that the 12 apostles are dead. But remember, uh, I'm with you until the end of time. The apostolic age continues now. Yes, indeed. Yes, well, until until heaven. Heaven yeah. is the only fuller representation we'll have. Clifford, thank you so much uh, for your question. Open line Thursday on EWTN Radio with Father Brian Milady here to answer your questions at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Martin has a question. Where does the justification for the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception come from? Where does the justification come from there, Father? Well, the justification in the Immaculate Conception is more based on tradition than on Scripture. And it's based on the idea that uh, since Mary was the mother of God, and since Christ took flesh from her body, that there's no sense in which she herself should suffer from the original sin. Of course, she has to be among the redeemed. Um, it was one of the things that caused such great difficulty in explaining it for almost 18, 1900 years mm. until 1854 where they finally accepted the explanation of Duns Scotus. But, because what happens is God loves her. It's, hard, it's a hard thing to translate. He loves her, and he loves her first of all. Uh, the Latin text is a legidaeum. He chose her at prea legidaeum, and he chose her especially. And another text, of course, which is used on that feast, in addition to the uh, Genesis text, about the temptation and then the famous uh, first gospel, Genesis 3.15, I'll put M to your seed and the woman's seed between, etc. God says to Satan, the other famous text is Ephesians, that he's chosen us before the creation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless in his sight. And the primary person he chose for that to occur is his mother. Mm-hmm. So those are the two primary justifications scripturally. But this is a scriptural doctrine that has more explanation and tradition. It's not uh, explicitly in scripture. It's implicitly there more than explicitly. Okay. Very good. Martin, thanks so much for your question. Back to the phones now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Here is Gannett now in Raleigh, North Carolina, listening to our great partner there, Divine Mercy Radio. Hey, Gannett, what's on your mind today? Uh, well, um, thank you for taking my call, Father. Um, my question is, um, I try to go to confession all the time, but when, you know, like sometimes it's not available or, you know, they're too busy like it was today, um, is it okay if you just confess directly to God or... Well, you have to make a distinction here between mortal and venial sin. If it's mortal sin, it's not okay. (laughs) Yeah. If it's venial sin, this is not required that you confess. It's highly recommended, but it's not required. Absolutely. And a person may go to communion um, if they only have venial sins and they haven't been to confession. For some strange reason... Many Catholics have grown up with the idea they can't go to communion unless they first go to confession at every single time. That's that's not the teaching of the church. 
It's only if you're aware of having committed a mortal sin. Now, there is a requirement that you go once a year at Eastertide because the church basically thinks, well, you must have done something to mess up <laughs> in, in the year. Yeah. But, uh, but if you have, aren't aware of having committed a mortal sin, well, we should confess to God every day. I do. Uh, in the, uh, we have, in the beginning of Mass, we have a confession to mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. In, the, in the hour or the office, in night prayer, all of us, confess to God. Yes. Um, but when it comes to confession of mortal sins, Christ himself has made the requirement that for these to be forgiven, they have to be confessed to a priest because you're not really confessing to a priest. You're confessing through the priest to him directly. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's the, I believe, the uh, answer. Gannett, thank you so much uh, for your call. Yeah. It is uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Milady here on EWTN Radio. Looks like we have a couple of lines open at the moment, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Interesting question here, Father, from Tom, who says, If people outside of the faith can enter heaven, how are we supposed to evangelize? Well, uh, people outside the faith can enter heaven only under the uh, standard that they're invincibly ignorant. Uh In other words, they can't know the truth. It's impossible to know the truth. And uh, because they they have no access to it. Or, now, this is something, in moral theology, it would be difficult to judge sometimes. Uh, Let's say my whole family was massacred by some Catholic European power who had colonized my country. Uh-huh. And there as a result, I'm not open to listening to any yeah. of it. Yeah. But um, all things being equal, the only way you can enter heaven is because you have explicit faith in something. Paul is very clear about this in the letter of the Hebrews 11.5. You at least have to believe in God and say he rewards good and punishes evil. Uh, explicitly required to more and more put flesh on that depending on where you exist in salvation history. In other words, whether you're a pagan, whether you're a Jew, what century you lived in as far as the Jewish revelation was given. The people that lived on Christ's time who were Jewish, and especially the leadership, they really had no excuse. The common people had more of an excuse because they couldn't study the law as well and things like that. But the idea that you can be saved despite not believing in the fullness of the doctrine of the Catholic Church is uh, always falls under invincible ignorance. Now, we believe that if this is sincere, as soon as a person hears the message, they should accept it. So there are two examples in the scripture of this. One is, of course, the Roman centurion who, you know, immediately, Lord, I'm not worthy to enter under my roof. Mm -hmm. And the other is the one I evoked already, which is the famous conversion of the eunuch of the court of the Candace, the Ethiopian eunuch who met Philip. And he was reading, remember, of the Bible. He was reading the Old Testament, basically. Uh Uh And he wanted to know what this passage was about. And Philip explained to him that it was about Jesus and he needed to be baptized. And so he says, well, there's water here. What's wrong with now? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so those elements naturally belong in the church. 
And um, so you should embrace it and they're that. So we evangelize to help people to know the truth so they can embrace it more fully. Sounds good. Sounds real good, actually. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for your uh, question there. In a moment, we're going to get to Susan in Pittsburgh. We have uh, two lines open right now, three lines open at 833-288-EWTN, 833-288-3986. Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Malady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Glad you could join us for Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. Uh, two lines open right now. You can snag one of them at 833-288-EWTN. If you have a question for Father Brian, 833-288-3986. Let's go to Pittsburgh right now. Talk with Susan listening on Sirius XM Channel 130. Hey there, Susan. What's on your mind today? Hi. Hey, thanks for taking my call. Um I, I heard just bits and pieces of a previous conversation a couple weeks ago about the Gregorian Mass. And my, I don't know much about it, but my question is, if you have a series of Masses like that said for somebody who is not Catholic, you know, um, I have a, a family member who passed <clears throat> who was a Buddhist, and um, would the Gregorian Mass help them? Or I'm not quite sure how that works. Okay. Neither am I. I've never, (laughs) I I think it has to do with being Christian. Yeah. You have to die as a Christian in order to experience what the Gregorian Mass offers to you. Obviously, prayers are never wasted, but uh, (laughs) yes, the revelations of St. Gregory, uh, I, I don't think they were about Buddhists. Okay. So. There you go, Susan. Appreciate your call. Let's go to uh, Tom in San Antonio, listening on Guadalupe Radio. Tom, what's on your mind today? Well, the, the, the gentleman just left to who I was speaking to, but I was telling him about a situation that I ran into in my parish uh-huh. where, where uh, in a Bible study, a lady brought up some of her uh, knowledge from her previous uh, experience in the Protestant Church, and she says, yes, I'm familiar with that. That's the rapture. And she was going on like this was really doctrine. And I tried to explain to her, and it was very odd because just the day before, on Monday, well, that was, yesterday was Wednesday, so the, on Tuesday, somebody was talking about this on your program, and the commentator explained it very, very well as to, you know, that was a, a false doctrine raised in the early uh, 20th century, sometime around the 20s, and uh, we, uh, we need not be thinking about stuff like that, that we should be following the Church's teaching on salvation. And I was wondering if I could get a copy of what I... I, I I was driving my car, so I didn't dare try to take notes. I I, I love to get a copy of uh, a rebuttal to the rapture. Well, I don't know if we could provide you a uh, copy, but uh, Father, anything to say there about the rapture? Yeah, well, the rapture comes from those sort of um, millennialist religions where you had these uh, prophets, these guru types, that uh, promised that the end of the world would occur on one specific day, 
It was very American in a way, and everybody had to go there. Well, when it didn't happen, then they had to try to explain what, what went wrong. Yeah. And so they have this thing where, well, you know, the wicked will be left on earth, but the good will be to be taken up. Uh, you know, in the clouds, uh-huh. and then actually, what was a hundred years later, they'll be returned. I once watched, watched a Trinity broadcasting program on this subject, really? and all these people just collapse. This, these bodies just collapse oh my. <laughs> during oh, wow. the supposed rapture. It has nothing to do with the resurrection of the dead. It has nothing to do with the fact that we're judged at our death by Christ. It's a, a typical, strange, nonsensical idea that there's sort of two um, final ends of the world. Hmm. Well, there can't be two. I'm sorry. Yeah. And uh, so, uh, yes, I, I must admit I, I'm not a total expert in the rapture, but I know about it to know that it's not in Scripture and it's certainly not in tradition. And it certainly doesn't correspond to common sense either. Okay. That's what we need to know. Uh, Tom, thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Jim now in central Missouri. All right, Jim, what's on your mind today, sir? Hey, everybody. Hey, that, that previous caller from just now, there is a book out there. I have it at home, but I don't have the uh, author or the title. But it's uh, Christ, uh, Catholic Rebuttals to the Rapture. Okay. Very, very I'm good. sure. All right. Okay, so my question uh, earlier, a few callers ago, uh, about confession uh, to a priest. Uh, you mentioned that uh, Jesus told the apostles it had to be done uh, that way. I can't find that in there, really. Besides, the sins you shall forgive, they shall forgive. And what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. What you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is normally considered to be the... Uh, establishment of the sacrament of confession, the jurisdictional power of the apostles okay, and their successors. All right. Is that helpful for you, Jim? Yeah, I've heard that. Uh, I, I'm aware of that. I, uh, I'm I just not sure that makes sense for me for a confession purpose. But uh, I understand. I understand where it's coming from. Well, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. It doesn't make sense for confession. But I, I think it's pretty clear. It's stated to the apostles. That's remember Jesus breathes on them in the upper room after he rises from the dead. Yes. Receive the Holy Spirit, whose sins you shall forgive, they are forgiven. Whose sins you shall retain, they are retained. Does, that, does, that's that, mean, though, does that mean though that you can't be saved without without professing your sins? Uh, to a priest before death? I mean... Well, if you have the opportunity to... Again, you're you're mixing up the doctrine and the morals, all right? Doctrinally, you have to confess your sins to a priest. Morally, if it's impossible for you to get to a priest, then, you know, you can give your confession to someone else to take it to the priest, put it under the power of the keys, or... You can just say your act of contrition, and 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 uh, in, in, in the hour of death, you know, you loaded this question by saying at the hour of death, the hour of death, anything's accepted, if it's the slightest movement toward God. But n- normally, things, all things being equal, if you can have recourse to a priest, you should. 
And it's such an important requirement that uh, Father Damien, you know, in the leper colony in uh, Molokai in yes, Hawaii, yes. There, he couldn't confess to a priest personally on the island because they wouldn't let one on the island. So if he found if he saw a ship going past, he'd row out to the ship as it went past and shout his confession to the priest wow. who give him absolution. No, it's an ex- look. Catholicism is an incarnational religion. It's a very human religion. The psychiatrist Carl Jung once said, who was not Catholic, that the reason in the 19th century Catholics had less emotional problems than Protestants is because we could actually confess or tell our faults, our difficulties to a person who personally responded. Mm-hmm. And, and, and now, of course, very few people go to confession anymore, or they don't think they really have to, or, well, you know, I mean, you asked me this in the strangest way. Yes, in certain conditions you could be saved, but that's not the point. The point is what Christ's will is normally and ordinarily. And the point is normally and ordinarily that you can only be saved, yes, by going to confession. Because for one thing, you can't commun- go, go to communion unless your mortal sins are forgiven. Well, communion is the food of the soul. It's absolutely necessary for us. So I, again, find it strange that all people emphasize in this is sin. When the whole reason we're concerned about this is for the sake of the food of the Eucharist. Yes, indeed. Jim, thanks so much for your call. Appreciate hearing from you in Missouri. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN Radio. Let's go now to Dennis in Carmel, New York, or Carmel, if you prefer, listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Dennis, what's on your mind today? Yeah, good afternoon, and thank you, Father Brian, for your excellent way of describing our beautiful, beautiful faith, the Catholic Church. What I would like to bring to your attention from the pews, is the majority of Catholic men i friends with, I socialize with, they have no idea that you cannot get a vasectomy as a male because it's a mortal sin and you could be excommunicated. I also have other Catholic friends that are Masons, and they don't understand you cannot be a Catholic and join the Masons. You'll be excommunicated for that. But yet, we're losing a lot of young people because the rules aren't fully explained about the beauty of our church. What makes us so special from so many others that we're the original church? And Father Brian, I'd like you to address those two issues for me. Thank you. All right. Well, vasectomy, the only thing you're not right about is you're not excommunicated for it. Uh, you, you certainly it is a mortal sin, and I already know all about this because I've had several friends I've had to explain it to, and some of them are devout Catholics, and it's come as news to them. And I remember I was explaining to some friends of mine in, uh, at a dinner one night, and um, they said, well, it is. I said, well, it's contraception. Hello? <laughs> you, you can't have children afterwards. Well, that is true. And I said, yes, it is. So we talked about it for a while, and it was interesting because these were two brothers, and they were huge. Uh, they both been deputy sheriffs, and uh, one of them left, and the other one, we, we stayed, and we chatted a little while longer. And you know what he said to me? 
He said, you know, Father, deep down we knew it was wrong. Wow. But we wouldn't admit it to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, as of the Masons, that is something that I, I don't quite know what to say about that. Uh, it's a religion, and it's not a Christian religion. But to convince people of that is very hard. Because in the United States, at least, most people look on the Masons like a service organization like the Elks Club. And it's not that. It has its own rituals. It has its own God, really. Remember, it's the all-seeing eye, and there's no trinity. Mm-hmm. So, and what it basically says is we all believe the same thing. I've heard that so many times. Well, Muslims and Christians, they believe in the same God. And I said, no, actually, they don't. It's true we believe some things about God that are the same, like that he's one, but they don't believe he's triune, and they certainly don't believe, even though they believe that Jesus is the glass of the, a prophet, they don't believe that Jesus was the son of God. And they certainly don't believe that we can be made in the image and likeness of God because God is so other, you can't possibly reproduce him in any sense or reflect him in any sense. And that's why the religion is called Islam, which means submission. <laughs> There's no such thing as the love of God exactly. Yeah. Even though they have some very beautiful phrases about it because Muhammad was quite logical in the way he explained his revelation. But I, I know it's difficult to do that because I think there are Masons even in uh, the priesthood and some high echelons of the priesthood, and really? especially true in, in Europe, really? yes. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, the Freemasons are, uh, it's important, for, and you were right about this, to emphasize their religion. Now, of course, George Washington was a Mason. Mozart was an extremely devout Catholic, was a Mason. But in the 18th century, that meant quite a bit different. Th- it was quite a bit different than it is now. Uh, it was more a professional organization, although it did have religious overtones, it's true, uh-huh. um, in the 18th century. It was only in the 19th century that the church uh, discovered the Masons were so virulently anti-Catholic as they are and has prohibited being a member of them under pain, as you say, you're right about that, excommunication. The other thing is, um, when I was in Italy, I lived there for six years in the 80s, they had a huge drug bust in Italy, and all the drugs were found in the basement of the Grande Loggia in Rome, in Palermo. Wow. I mean, Grande Loggia in Palermo, which is the big Masonic lodge Mm -hmm. in Palermo in Mm -hmm. Sicily. Oh, boy. So, I mean, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's a lot more. You're right about that. But how do we get the message out? I mean, we've we've told people for years a lot of this stuff, but people don't listen. And then you have people that tell me, well, deep down I knew it was wrong, but I refused to admit it to myself. Well, I'm glad I said something. Yeah. And I, I tried to be as... Um, you know, uh, I didn't want to be condemnatory, but on the other hand, I wanted to be informative. Sure. And uh, Well, good. There we are. And uh, thank you, Dennis, so much uh, for your call. Appreciate also your kind words uh, for the faith and uh, for Father Brian. Yes, thank you.
It is uh, Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady here on EWTN. Uh, one of our wonderful weekend programs we have cooked up for you is EWTN Bookmark with Doug Keck. This weekend, uh, Doug sits down with Bishop Donald Hying, on, and they'll be talking about uh, Bishop Donald's new book, Love Never Fails, Living the Catholic Faith in Our Daily Lives. Should be a great show. That's uh, 4.30 p.m. Eastern on Saturday afternoon right here on EWTN Radio. Back to the phones now for Ann in Seattle. Hey there, Ann, what's on your mind today? Yeah, I had a question. Um, Father was speaking earlier about how um, we only need to go to confession to um, confess mortal sins, which I was aware of. But I, I sometimes am confused about what exactly constitutes a mortal sin, um, especially, you know, reading in the New Testament how Jesus defines adultery as, you know, a man looking at another woman lustfully, uh-huh. or um, also, like, taking the Lord's name in vain, um, even somewhat accidentally, if those are things um, where we would be required to um, go to confession and abstain from communion and fill we did that. Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I have a book on the Ten Commandments uh-huh. that tries to distinguish and explain those things you can buy at EWTN and uh, the Decalogue Decoded because it's sometimes difficult to know that. For example, the Lord's name in vain. No, you do not have to confess every time you say you know the Lord's name or something like that. But the Lord's name in vain, its primary application is when God's name is solemnly called upon to witness to a truth that a person knows to be a lie. In other words, perjury Uh is an example of taking the Lord's name in vain. Yes, you would have to confess to that. It is a mortal sin. Uh, Other things that are just impolite speech, they might fall under venial sin, but they wouldn't be mortal sin. I know people, for example, who think all gluttony is a mortal sin. It's not. Gluttony uh, generally is a venial sin. It only becomes mortal when it's used for the purposes a person's palate becomes so important to them that they do things like murder people to get the food. Now, this may mm-hmm. sound far-fetched to you, but in the Frugal Gourmet's cookbook... Wow. <laughs> He talks about the fact that there was a kind of mushroom so prized in ancient China that emperors used to commit assassination to get it. Whoa. That's a mortal sin of gluttony. Ooh. Or C.S. Lewis has a text in the Screwtape Letters where he talks about an old woman who eats very little, but she's so picky about her food that she basically breaks off friendships. She uh, uh, tests overworked nurses, uh, uh, waitresses. Um, she's rude, she's loud, <laughs> she's all these things. And, and that would be an example of a mortal sin of gluttony. Mm. And he says the sad thing is, remember this is a correspondence from a senior tempter in hell, that the woman will be very surprised to find that she's been doing this because the portions involved are so small. <laughs> yeah. And um, I forget what the other thing you mentioned was, but I believe that would fall more. Well, looking at someone lustfully. uh, Oh, yeah. Okay. But what does lustful mean there? It doesn't mean just a glance. Well, the classic example of looking at someone lustfully is contrary to the spousal love that I talked about, where you look on them as an object of use for you. And the only thing that keeps you from using them is the occasion. 
So the classic example of the lustful look in Holy Scripture is David seeing Bathsheba. Because remember, he doesn't just look. I mean, you know, he has, yeah. you know, relations with her. Mm-hmm. And he tries to cover up his sin by murder. And he murders this person who isn't even Jewish and, you know, obeys the Jewish law. I mean, he's so far sunk in evil over this original experience. That, and the, But, of course, part of that is to demonstrate the depth of David's repentance, too. Okay. So um, we need to have a refresher course. Yes, I agree with you about this. Immortal and venial sin. The biggest lack since Vatican II is moral theology. Very few people study moral theology deeply, even priests, mm. for confessional practice, which is very sad. It is indeed. And thanks so much for your call. Let's go to Bob now in Chesterfield, Michigan, listening on, um, I believe he's listening on, what is it, Sirius? Probably so. Yep, Sirius XM Channel 130. Bob, what's on your mind today? Uh, going back to confession seems to be the hot topic today. I was given a Bible study at work a few years ago, and I'm Catholic and frequent the sacrament. And so just kind of, it wasn't really a Catholic Bible study that day, but uh, it just naturally came out of me, and I had a, one of our Protestant uh, friends kind of stand up and, and say, are you telling me that my mother and father, who weren't Catholic, are going to hell because they never confessed their sins to a priest? And I, and he he saved me, actually, because he stormed out of the room, so I did not have to answer. How would we answer our, our Protestant brothers and sisters with that fall under invincible ignorance? Yes. Remember, there are three requirements for a mortal sin. It be done. It be about grave matter. It's done with complete consent, and that includes full knowledge. Now, full doesn't mean the same kind of knowledge a moral theologian would have, but it means that you know that this is wrong, and seriously wrong, and full consent would mean that since you know it's wrong, you choose to do it nonetheless. Mm. It isn't a result of, let's say, a neurosis or emotional weakness or something like that. What the Protestants lack is full knowledge, obviously. Mm -hmm. So they have to be instructed. And uh, no, and and I love the people the way people that say that. So you're saying so and so is going to hell? No, I'm not saying that. What I am (laughs) saying is that you could go to hell if you didn't know that. Yeah. (laughs) Um, And I remember one person. She she was a friend of mine, and she told me that she'd been in vitro fertilized. And I said no. And she kind of looked at me skeptically, and she says. You think I'm going to hell because I was in vitrally fertilized? And all I said was, well, it is a possibility, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, they I don't know what the deal is. But when people react that way, it's because they don't want to deal with it, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Bob, thanks so much uh, for your call. Uh, let's go to uh, a, a question here from Catherine who emailed us. What is the point of prayer if God is ultimately going to do his own will. What do you think? Okay, well, this is the famous difficulty of St. Augustine in the letter to Proba. Yeah. <laughs> um, what we do is we don't pray to change God's will or to influence God's will. What we do is 
that we pray that um, we might conform to God's will, basically, and we can always pray that his will is what we would like, you know, um, to happen. Okay. So it's in light of what will has already been determined. Uh, but God wants us to pray for it because that demonstrates how much we need him and how much we love him and how much we realize he loves us. Even if we don't get what we want from our point of view, the fact that we depend upon him for all these things is what we demonstrate. The Catechism of the Catholic Church says the primary answer to all prayer is the transformation of the praying heart. In other words, it's the fact that we realize we rely on God for all that is. And, and you can certainly express your needs. In fact, God may have determined that this will be accomplished by whether you express your needs or not for this particular thing. And, and there's a beautiful text in St. Thomas where he talks about the fact that if we do God's will because we're his friends, because he's our friend, he wants to do our will. Love that. By the union of love. Yes, yeah. indeed. All right. And one final question here, Father, from Terrence watching us on YouTube. Why can't we just confess sins directly to Jesus? Why have a priest? Well, why have a body of Christ on the cross? Yeah. Why have anything? You know, that's the typical uh, Lutheran difficulty. Physical things cannot mediate grace. And yet... Luther felt called upon to keep a couple of the sacraments, but he wasn't exactly clear what they meant. The ultimate Protestant sect is one with no priesthood, no art, no music, no sacraments, whatever, and that's the Quakers. Because Christ has a body, he established a church, just as the Old Testament did, so that they might mediate his mercy to us. Terrence, thanks so much uh, for your question. Father, could you leave us with your blessing, please? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. But Father Brian, thank you so much uh, for joining us today on Open Line Thursday. Thanks for having me. Always appreciate uh, hearing from you. We also appreciate all of our listeners. Be sure to join us tomorrow afternoon, same time, for Colin Donovan answering questions of all sorts of theologic issues. Until then, I'm Tom Price. Have a wonderful day. See you then. God bless.